I don't know how you would describe the last night that Jesus was with his disciples. Um, they celebrated Passover together, and you can think of all the things that you know of Christ and what happened that night. Um, you could say it was the night that he stood trial in front of a kangaroo court on trumped-up charges. Uh, you could say it was uh, the night of his failure, if you were perhaps one of his enemies. Um, you could say it was the night of the beginning of his suffering. It was the night of his last night before his crucifixion. It's, you know, how would you describe that night? If, if you were on death row, so to speak, and you, you knew it was your last night on earth. I think it's interesting for someone who had met the risen Christ, a man named Paul, who was converted from a significant life of religious um, Phariseeism, that when he described Jesus last night before the cross, he described it this way. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, I give to you uh, what Jesus gave to me on the night he was what? Betrayed. I think what we need to understand is this was a night in which Jesus was betrayed. And first, what comes right to mind is, of course, Judas. But what I want us to do, is, as that song said, I want us to, to be led to the cross, in a sense, and walk that road with him. And just hit a couple of the, the high spots. And, and I want us to see what maybe Paul was meaning when he said, on the night Jesus was betrayed. And how critically important that was. Jesus was having dinner, or really celebrating the Passover, with his disciples in the upper room. You know the story, don't you? Jesus became troubled in spirit. He was sitting around. They were having the meal. There were a lot of parts and pieces of the meal, but they were having the meal. He says this, uh, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he said this, listen, I tell you what, one of you guys is going to betray me. As you can imagine, that threw cold water on the conversation around the table, and everybody stared at each other. Who is it? John re reclined next to Jesus, and, and Simon Peter was asked and, and was there, and they were asking him, find out who he's talking about. Jesus picked up a piece of bread, and he, uh, he dipped it in the cup. Uh, it may be, he also maybe scooped up some of the meal onto the bread. It would have been a normal thing for a host to do at a meal if they were going to honor a guest. And he scooped it up and, and handed it, and he said, uh, I give this to the one. And he, he dipped a piece of bread, and he handed it to Judas. What you, what you have to do, do real quick. What's interesting is after uh, this happened, this is what the Bible says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. At that moment of, this is the final moment of his, his betrayal, really in some sense, his last opportunity to get off of the track of treachery. Jesus extending him the bread is his way of saying, is this really the road you want to go down? And in this final moment, Judas has an opportunity here to, to despite the treachery in his own heart, to say, that's not the road I want to go down. But nonetheless, he said, that's, that's right, we're going to go down that road. In a very real sense, what Jesus was saying when he handed that piece of bread to Judas was this. You're a betrayer. Your heart is full of treachery and betrayal. Good news, I take betrayers. Those are, those are the kind of people I take. 
And Judas, in accepting that piece of bread from Jesus, and Satan then taking over at that point, is basically saying to Jesus, you may take me, I don't want you. Uh, You may want me. Good for you. I mean, maybe some of us have been on that end of a relationship like that. Well, Jesus was. And this was just the beginning. This is a night. If I can say it this way, and I think this was what the Apostle Paul was alluding to, this was a night of betrayal. This is just step one of the betrayal Jesus is going to experience that night. In, in Matthew's gospel, in describing uh, this scene at this Last Supper, this Passover a supper that they were, uh, in some sense, celebrating together, it's really interesting. On the, on the beginning of the passage of Matthew 26, uh, Jesus talks about the fact that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And then right after that, uh, there's a description in the Gospel of Matthew of the, the Last Supper, of the First Communion, where Jesus takes the bread and the cup and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he describes for them, he says, this is what I want you to do to remember my redemption. And so at the beginning of the passage, he talks about the betrayal of Judas. Then he talks about his redemption. And then he gets to the end of, of the Last Supper, and they begin to move out from the upper room to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and this is what Jesus says to the rest of the disciples. Stunning. Listen to this in Matthew 26, 31. Jesus told them all, this very night, you will all fall away. You will all fall away on account of me. In fact, he says, scripture will be fulfilled. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So this is what the Bible is doing for us. He's saying there's a betrayal at the beginning from Judas. And then he testifies to them, I am your redeemer, remember me. And then after that redemptive, uh, remember my uh, broken body and my shed blood, he reminds them, you think there's just one betrayer in the room? There's not. You're all going to flee from me. You will all fall away. Peter, always the bold one. Even if everyone else falls away, I, though, Lord, will stand firm. And Jesus says, truly, this night, you're going to not just betray me once. You're going to betray me three times. Not only are you going to betray me with the rest of them, Peter, you're going to take it to next level betrayal. So at the Last Supper, Jesus is experiencing, despite the fact that he is offering them his body for redemption and his, his death for their forgiveness, everyone will flee. You will all fall away. The betrayal continues. Mark's gospel is the most interesting when it comes to Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane. You're familiar with what happens. Jesus is praying, and uh, all of a sudden, a giant crowd of soldiers and uh, people armed with clubs and spears and swords show up to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark says this, Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said, that you've come to arrest me with swords and clubs? I've been in the temple every day. You could have arrested me if you wanted to. He said, but this is also scripture would be fulfilled. So he hands himself over to them. And this is what's incredible. Verse 50 of Mark 14. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Not ran for their lives to protect their own skin, to recoup at a place where they might meet up with him. What did they do to him? deserted, were done. 
this is where we're going, Jesus? No, we're not. Every one of them deserted him, including Mark, the writer of the gospel, a young man wearing nothing but a liniment garment. And to get away, somebody grasped his garment, and rather than be arrested, he slipped out of his garment and fled with nothing on, in shame, losing uh, any sense of dignity he, he, he might have had. He flees in shame. He would rather run through the night naked than be with that guy. This is just the beginning of the night for Peter. Peter follows at a distance as Jesus is taken up to the high priest. Luke tells us of a scene that is almost impossible to imagine. They took Jesus to the high priest and they had him up in this kangaroo court, trumped up charges, a completely illegal gathering of the uh, court. Out in the courtyard, a fire had been kindled and, and Peter was recognized by uh, this servant girl as the flames are reflected on his face. If you've sat around a campfire, you know what that looks like. So in the, the dimly lit courtyard with nothing but the orange flames flashing on his face, she goes, I know that guy. That's, he was one of them. And he said, woman, I don't know him. A little while later, someone else said, I, yeah, you're one of those guys. He said, man, I am not. About an hour later, I mean, Peter is just hanging out. Certainly this fellow was with him for, because he's a Galilean. Listen to his accent. Look at what he's wearing. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just then a rooster crowed. And listen to this in verse 61 of Luke 22. The Lord turned in that moment and looked right at, at Peter. Must have been standing by a window up in the, the high priest's quarters. And at that moment, when Peter made that third denial, Jesus turned and looked right up. With everything that was going on with Jesus, up in, uh, including physical abuse, at that moment, he turned and looked at his betrayer. Not Judas, but Peter. The next day, Jesus is dragged before a guy named Pilate, the governor of the region. He wants to exonerate Jesus and let him go because he can't find any reason to arrest him. He's got two prisoners, you know the one guy, right? Barabbas. He's got Jesus, and he goes before the crowd and says, listen, I'll tell you what, it's Passover, I let you, always let you have one guy. Uh, certainly you're going to take Jesus who has done nothing, not this murderer and insurrectionist Barabbas. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered, without hesitation. What should I do with this one uh, Jesus who is called Messiah? And they all answered, crucify him. Why? Why in the world would I crucify him, Peter? I should say Pilate responds. And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. I know uproar was breaking out. And then Pilate does something incredible. Pilate goes over to a wash basin, and he washes his hands and says this, I am innocent of the blood of Jesus. It's your responsibility. He washes his hands. Now, if, we know, if you know anything about Pilate, why in the world has Pilate all of a sudden grown a conscience? Because he didn't have one. Pilate kills somebody. It must be Tuesday. 
He was not somebody who had a conscience. What Pilate is, so we have the, the one man with absolutely no scruples in this entire scene. He is the one going to all of the folks who apparently know what's right and wrong. You guys are off your rockers. And the crowd is shouting louder and louder, crucify the Messiah. The people of Israel who had long awaited the arrival of the Messiah, crucify him. They take their betrayal to the next level. In verse 25 of Matthew 27, all the people said this, his blood be on us and our children. Don't just crucify him. We'll take the curse if there is one. His blood be on us. And this is what the Bible says. He released Barabbas to them. But Jesus, he had flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Betrayal, betrayal, betrayal. And we're not done yet. In Matthew 27, Jesus has been on the cross. Of course, he was flogged and he was struck and he was naked and he was hung on this cross. Nails in his arms or hands and in his feet. All of a sudden, it, the Bible tells us in Matthew 27, 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. It just got dark. All of a sudden, there was darkness all over uh, probably the entire region of Jerusalem. So for three hours, Jesus is there, and all anybody could tell what was going on was by what they could hear. So after any movies you've seen about the crucifixion, it's hard to film a movie where it's just nothing but blackness. But this is what is happening at the end of Jesus' time on the cross. There's nothing to see. It's only cries and moans and uh, the distant wailing of a grieved mother. But nobody can see hardly anything except for maybe the faint torchlight that might be illuminating here and there. And so then three hours of this darkness out of nowhere, Jesus screams, cries out in a loud voice. I mean, could you imagine? Completely dark. You don't know what's happening. And then out of nowhere, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His other betrayals at this point don't seem like a big deal, do they? A cry out of the darkness. Jesus in this moment is not needing information. He is in agony expressing the consciousness awareness that the Father has abandoned him. The disciples running away into the darkness in Gethsemane at this point in his life is so silly. We have to understand something about Jesus on the night he was betrayed. More than anyone else in human history, anyone else who has ever lived or who ever will live, Jesus, more than anyone else in human history, died totally alone. Nobody was there. Completely betrayed and abandoned. On the night he was betrayed, on the night he was alone. I want us to understand something tonight is he did that so we would not have to. He died betrayed so we would not have to die betrayed. He died alone so we would not have to die alone. Here's how, again, the Apostle Paul we talked about earlier describes what was going on in those few moments. And I'm going to read five or six verses from Romans. Bear with me. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now, 
apart from the law, apart from the rule system, apart from good behavior, bad behavior, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. The righteousness of God has been made known. Your interest should be, you should be interested in. God has made his righteousness known. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul would say, I think, all have betrayed him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. How do we get this righteousness? God presented Christ as a, a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Excuse me. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he could both be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. God did this whole thing, was betrayed, became betrayed, died on a cross so that he could both be just and the one who makes us no longer betrayed. He's the only one who could do it. As one writer says it this way, in Christ's cry of dereliction, in Christ's cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The horror of the world's sin and the cost of our salvation are revealed. As Christ cries out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We discover in that moment the horror of our sin, the horror of our betrayal, and the true cost of our salvation. I'm going to suggest this. I'm, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not. We are by nature betrayers. We are by nature those who betray. He, on the other hand, is betrayed and by nature a redeemer. So we are by nature betrayers. He is betrayed and by his very nature a redeemer. So I want just real quickly as we begin to close here, think through those betrayals that I described for you in just a little bit of a different light. I want us to understand something about Judas when Jesus was handing him that bread. You, we have to understand Jesus wanted him with his treacherous, betraying heart to stay with him. Jesus wasn't in that moment saying to Judas, have a great day in hell. I mean, could, would, would you imagine Christ would say that to Judas? He's reaching his hand out to Judas with the bread of honor saying, please, with your heart filled with treachery, come with me. I receive betrayers. That's what I do. And Judas didn't want that redeemer. We have to understand with Peter in Luke 22, when, when Jesus looked at Peter out of that window, the word there that says, Jesus looked at Peter, I think most of us, when we imagine that scene, we imagine Jesus looking down his long, judgmental nose, perhaps. I told you, you would betray me. 
That's not the word there. It is a look of concern. It is a look of a man who's looking at his friend saying, brother, hang in there. We're going to do this. John 21 is coming. We're going to have breakfast. We're good. I take betrayers. He's not looking at Peter saying, get out of here, loser. He's looking at Peter, letting him know, I'm with you. I'm a redeemer of betrayers. In Mark 16, we read something really interesting. We don't have time to develop it fully, so I'm going to ask you just to trust me on this. This is the description of Jesus after his resurrection, or at least the tomb after his resurrection. Some of them went to visit the tomb. It says this in, in Mark 16, 5. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And what we have to understand is something a little bit about Greek literature. And, and I know I just lost all of you there, didn't I? That's the exact phrase that's used of Mark fleeing. A young man in a white robe. And what Mark has said here is, I fled naked, and, I, and he found me and gave me my linens back. Jesus is connecting his resurrection with the covering of our shame. He's saying, you have betrayed me in your shame, and I am the one who will clothe you because I take betrayers. I clothe the shamed. I redeem betrayers. Luke 23, Jesus, knowing his father, was going to have to abandon him as a function of his redemptive plan, prays this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, see, when you and I pray that, it always sounds like it's religious pretense, doesn't it? It always sounds like we're trying to sound like, no, we're fine, it's okay, I forgive them. Jesus never prays with religious pretense. He always prays with a full heart that God might be moved to forgive betrayers. Elizabeth Browning wrote this verse. I might read it twice just so you catch it. This is what she said. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. It went up from his holy lips amid his lost creation that of the lost none of us should ever have to use those words of desolation because Jesus said, I am forsaken, the betrayers will never have to. We will never have to. Even though we are by nature betrayers with no animosity, with absolutely no spite or resentment, he gives us a white linen garment to wear when we believe and trust in him. He looks on us as he looks on Peter with a look of love and compassion. He yearns for our peace as Jesus yearned for the peace of Jerusalem when he wept over Jerusalem and its peace. Jesus prays for our forgiveness today. Jesus prays for our forgiveness today. He stands by the Father and he makes intercession for his redeemed betrayer saying, God, 
forgive them. I paid for it. He offers betrayers and rebels the bread of his body. He offers betrayers his shed blood. Because Jesus said, I'm forsaken, we will never have to. From the moment Christ redeems us, from the moment our faith is placed in him rather than our own efforts, from that moment on, we can be guaranteed there will be never a time in our life ever again where we will be alone like he was. We will never be forsaken. And he did it by being forsaken himself. 